Okay, folks, this concludes another program, broadcast, transmission of Radio Blackout. I'd like to thank my guest, DJ Cowron, DJ Lil Brown, DJ Daryl Waltrip. They, uh, they all played some great jams um, we'll be back next week open sign up starts next week if you're interested in playing on the radio uh, come to one of our training sessions uh, they're every Sunday at 4pm you can come to the student activities building the Thompson Street entrance Pick up the phone, call us, and we'll let you in. And we'll show you all the magic and wonder that is broadcasting live from Ann Arbor here at 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're looking for a few good new DJs for this summer. So please, please, if you're, if you're here... You got no classes, you got nothing to do, you ain't got no job, it's Friday, whatever. Uh, come and volunteer for WCBN, it's a, it's a good place to be. Okay, we have Living Writers with Siri, Su- oh, I'm not even going to try that last name. Um, coming up right about now. So... Keep it locked. Lots of great programming headed your way. Starting now.
Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to tell you that we've got Siri Hustvet on the line from Brooklyn, New York. Siri, welcome. Thank you. Here I am in Brooklyn, but it's lovely to talk to you. Oh, well, it's lovely to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this this moment because a while ago, James Meter sent an advanced copy of your novel, The Summer Without Men. And now uh, the launch date approaches. It's it's the end of April, isn't it, Siri? When yes, the, that's right. The book comes out. And have, have you been... Um, uh, traveling around, uh, talking about the your latest well, novel. Um, I am sort of about to do it. Actually, the book is out in in a number of places. Um, it's um, just coming out in France. It's uh, out in Germany and England, and Denmark and Norway. So I am going to be traveling um, in Europe for the book as well. Oh, that's wonderful! It's 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 world domination immediately. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and, well, you're no stranger to that, because your other novels have also been, is it translated into 29 languages? I think altogether, not every book has been translated into 29 languages, but if you add them all up, it's something like that. It's it's a lot of languages. Well, that's And, and apparently, I would think that maybe the Norwegian would be one of the most important languages that it, it became trans- to you. Is that well, right, Siri? one of the few translations that I can actually read and, and make some judgment on. Um, I studied German and French, so I can look at the translations, but I'm not good enough in those lang- languages to really judge them. So, yes, the Norwegian is close to my heart. Uh, and, and, you can, and it's interesting because somebody else then, did you work at all with the translator for the, the Norwegian edition, Siri? Or? I have looked over the translations. I have a very good translator now, so I trust her implicitly. Oh, <laughs> so she gets the nuances, right? I think the... she gets the nuances, yes. Well, Siri, before we go any further, I'll read your short bio in the back of your latest no- novel, The Summer Without Men. Siri Husved was born in 1955 in Northfield, Minnesota. She moved to New York City in 1978 and earned her Ph.D. in English literature at Columbia University in 1986. She is the author of five novels, including The Sorrows of an American, What I Loved, The Enchantment of Lily Dahl, and The Blindfold, as well as two collections of essays, A Plea for Eros, and Mysteries of the Rectangle, and most recently, her brilliant exploration of brain and mind in The Shaking Woman, or A History of My Nerves. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, Paul Oster. And Siri, actually, um, uh, Paul was on the program earlier this year. So. Yes, I know. I, I, I heard that. So you've, you've talked to, you're talking now to two members of one family. Exactly. And that we'll have to get Sophie on. Yes. <laughs> Eventually, she's doing fine. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, and, and I know she's a singer, so maybe that means she's also a songwriter. So that would she be. She is a songwriter. That qualifies her as a living writer. Absolutely. <laughs> living writer. She's a, definitely a living writer of music. Music and lyrics. <laughs> uh, well, Siri, thanks so much for for actually for being on the program today. And I should say that we're taping this um, the 14th of April, 2011. Um, 
and I'm so glad we're catching you before this all the traveling begins. Um, Siri, this 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 novel, um, the summer without men. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the main character M Mia? And because it seems to share intersections, uh, it, it's part. Even though uh, critics are saying, oh, there's, it's a departure um, for you, it also shares many connections to to your other works. Um, yes. Well, um, I. I suppose that the tone of this book is different from um, any other book that I've written, partly because there's, there really is quite a bit of humor. Yes. And uh, I think that the book was born out of this ironic tone of, of the narrator. I mean, once I found her voice, her way of expressing herself, um, the book seemed to roll out of me. And it, it, it's comes out of a very simple conceit, which is that Mia Fredrickson, who's a poet um, and uh, also teaches poetry, had, her husband of 30 years just picks up and leaves her. You know, it's one of those stories that many of us her have heard many, many times over, which is, you know, the guy goes out for cigarettes and doesn't come back. Well, it's not quite as bad as that. He, he wants a break in the marriage, but there's really no warning for this break. Guess and he, he uh, Mia takes it. it very hard, and she ends up going home to her mother in Minnesota. And um, the story of the novel is what happens after that after this uh, breakup. And despite the slightly sorrowful aspect of the story and the banal aspect of the story, I think of it, um, I think that it all rests on how it's told. Um, Mia is a very lively narrator and she has a large sense of humor. Yes. Yes, and as and maybe that's one of the ways that 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 you're sort of um, peeking in there too, with a sense of humor as the writer. Yes, well, you know, it's 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 her voice, and I, I really do feel that characters grab a hold of you, and uh, once you have them, uh, you really are not in control. They take over, and Mia certainly took over me. And that that reminds me on your on your website, um, SiriHusvet.net. Um, actually, I think there's on the media section there's a clip of you reading where J.M. Kutsi introduces you, and right. I think you're talking about how those characters actually you sometimes have intentions for the end of the story, which you're trying to go towards, and the, the characters won't won't let you go there. Yes, it's extremely interesting, and I've been um, trying more and more to, to, to work out some of uh, some of how the you know how how does creativity actually work, and I think that writing is a lot like conscious dreaming. In other words, you're not sleeping, but the condensations, the mergers, um, the strange narratives that happen in dreams are not so dissimilar to what happens when people are working on a novel. In other words, there's something involuntary about the course of a story. And uh, this interests me a great deal. Yes, I can. I can see why, as as does all aspects of the mind and, and yes. psychoanalysis. <laughs> That's a really big thing for me. I spend a lot of time reading, you know, uh, papers on neurobiology. I'm very curious about how our our mind brain works. 
And and you're also part of, I feel like, and this may be slightly old news by now, but weren't you invited to be part of a, a neuropsychoanalyst committee that... Yes, I was in a discussion group, and just two weekends ago, actually, I gave a lecture that was part of a a lecture series, a neuroscience lecture series at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. So I continue to be deeply um, immersed in um, neurobiology, but it's neuroscience with philosophy, with literature. You know, it's an interdisciplinary approach um, that interests me the most. I mean, I'm not doing pure neuroscience. You know, I'm not a researcher. But I do use neuroscience um, to talk about, well, what I think of as ultimate questions. Uh, creativity is one of them. And, uh, you know, what are we after all? What is our psychobiological reality as human beings? And, and this is really what, in a fictional way, you're exploring in The Summer Without Men with Mia. Well, to some degree, I mean, the one thing I can certainly say I share with Mia is a wide range of references and a wide range of material. So Mia has a lot of fun <laughs> bouncing from one, um, you know, from philosophy to neuroscience. And uh, her uh, estranged husband is a neuroscientist. And, of course, if I didn't know anything about neuroscience, I couldn't have invented a neuroscientist. So I had a lot of fun with that. And I had some fun... Um, ridiculing certain aspects of uh, of evolutionary sociobiology, especially a lot of the material on sex difference, which I find heavily ideological. Oh, and so can you give us an example of um, where where Mia is able to, I guess, employ that ridicule? Well, yes, um, you know. There's a there's a part of the book where she um, starts talking about how the two sexes, men and women, have been differentiated over time. I mean, the Greeks, for example, thought about women as inverted men, and that their genitalia were just, you know, that women had the genitals inside and men had them outside, but essentially they were the same. Now that changed. Uh, sometime in the 18th century, and then the notion became that men and women were profoundly wholly different, not just in their sex organs, but their skin, um, you know, their everything their was skin. completely different. <laughs> their skin, uh, that's stretching some it. some of this goes on. I mean, there, there continue to be arguments that I find deeply annoying. There are scientific equivalents of that very popular book that I think it was called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Yes, yeah. I, I, I know the book. I haven't read it. You haven't read it. Well, I haven't read it either, but the title tells you a lot. It, the argument is somehow that men and women are fundamentally different. Um, and if there is an argument in this book about sex difference, and I, and I think there is um, with a lot of jocularity, um, and that is that men and women are more alike than they are different. And um, that, of course, there are differences between men and women, but many of those differences have been construed culturally um, and are ideological, in fact. So the idea of some absolute difference is, I think, silly. Yes. Um, (laughs) 
it, especially when you said um, the skin part. Like it was just it, like I mean, I, well, that's it's just silly, you know. But you know, there are, so there are remnants of these kinds of arguments that that continue in the sciences and elsewhere. And uh, so I, I I have a good time making fun of some of those arguments in the book. Oh, that's well, good, because somebody needs to um, make fun of them and expose them a little more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're on my side. I I wonder, I wonder if, um, because it's, I, it seems like you also were researching this part when you went, when you began telling us about the Greeks. Um, And so my sense of you, Siri, is that's what, this is what you do. Like you, you get hold of like, there's this idea, there's something. um, And then you, you just, you're a detective and you explore it, you go back to the beginning and and maybe you can even start maybe you even probably have a theory of like maybe it was different religions at the time that that made it was in you know to their advantage to differentiate between male and female in power structures or very complicated actually a lot of the it's not as if i get an idea and then i do research for it i'm always reading i'm constantly reading so when i'm writing i'm often referring to books that i've already read or read sometimes many years ago. Um, And occasionally I do research in the moment, too, or check out references that um, I remember but haven't reread for some time. So um, there's a lot of... I'm very interested in the history of sex difference, and I do give credit to um, a few people in, in... even inside the text itself, I mentioned Thomas LeCour, who um, is a scholar who wrote a very good book, and I think it's called Making Sex, um, and it's about the history of sex difference in the in the West. Okay, and then and you also um, you like Freud makes appearances, I think. Um... Yes, I always Freud always makes appearances in my work. I'm I'm not you know some kind of hard core Freudian, but I'm deeply interested in Freud and have been for many, many years, and actually on May 6th, I'm giving the 39th annual Sigmund Freud lecture in Vienna. That sounds wonderful. Freud is continually popping up in my work and in my life. Yes, and so that means you'll be there in Vienna and and, and speaking to a group of scholars and and, or Freud fans? I guess, yes. (laughs) Well, Siri, that sounds great. Once again, I'm glad we're ma- we're managing to catch up with you before you head to Europe. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, would you mind reading us um, a section from The Summer Without Men? No, I'd be delighted. Okay, wonderful. So Thank we'll you. we'll be right back today <laughs> on the program. Siri Hootsvet, um, her novel, The Summer Without Men. We'll be back. Things up so they'll go 
What's the matter, Daddy? Come on, save my soul. I need some sugar in my bowl. I ain't fooling. I want some sugar in my bowl. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. I am back. Hi. Hi, Siri. Hi. Welcome back. And everyone, you're listening. You're listening to Living Writers. Um, today on the program, Siri Husved, um, her novel, The Summer Without Men. Um, Siri, welcome back. You- I'm happy to be back. <laughs> And I am going to read you a little part from the book, which is about a massage. So it can be taken out, I think, without losing much of the meaning. Um, My heroine, Mia, um, gets a massage, and she's reporting on on what happened. So here goes. This is the, the masseur. He took each body part individually, all four limbs, feet, and hands, back and head, even my face at the end. I had no sexual feelings whatsoever, no erotic leaps or fantasies. I had no thoughts that I can recall. But after an hour and a half, Bedgood had reduced me to jelly. Mia was missing, missing in action, so to speak. The person who emerged from the massage room to find Boris snoring on a pink sofa had been transformed just as advertised. She had been remade into a limp, empty-headed, but altogether euphoric being. After rousing Iskovich from his pastel divan, this redone personage, who deserved a new name, Fifi or DD or doll face or just doll, sauntered arm in arm with husband toward Poetry Hotel. And that is where on the somewhat too soft bed, I or she was split open, broken into flaming pieces and transported to paradise four times in quick succession. The experience deserves commentary, not a word of which forwards any conventional notion of romance. Post-Bedgood ministrations, any person, no, I amend that, any person, bird, beast, or even inanimate object, provided it wasn't cold, could have sent me flying into the higher regions of erotic experience. The lesson here is that extreme relaxation promotes pleasure, and extreme relaxation is a state of nearly complete openness to whatever comes along. It is also thoughtlessness. I began to wonder whether there were people who lived their lives loose, easy, and fairly blank much of the time, whether there were doll faces out there in a kind of permanent sensual transport. I once read about a woman who had regular orgasms brushing her teeth, a report that astonished me, but which, after Bedgood, began to make some sense. A toothbrush might have done it. 
<laughs> Thanks, Siri. <laughs> I'm glad you you broke there because I was like turning away from the mic to laugh a few other times, and that time you'd caught me off guard, so I had just laughed into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's funny. I, it, this is a, it's a it's a very funny thing. I I did once have a massage that was just completely transformative, and I think that was the um, the instigation behind having this little moment in in the novel. Right, right, and and, and actually, I'm I'm so I am glad you you read that section, and um, it's it's funny because the book is about in some ways your your main character Mia. Um, trying to put together um, an identity after um, when Boris takes off, well, with the paws, um, uh, his his younger colleague. His squeeze, yes. (laughs) But so it's about Mia trying to sort of returning home to, to Minnesota and trying to 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 find out maybe remember what it's like to be herself without being grafted onto another person even someone you love um or entangled it's a good part of the book where she's really um she's thinking there's a lot of memory um there's a lot of fury anger and rebellion um at her fate but uh I think that the story of the novel is really that as time goes on during this summer, she begins slowly but surely to attach herself to the people around her. And uh, those people are women. Um, her mother, of course, she already loves, but then um, some of her mother's friends she gets to know. Um, there is a neighbor woman, a young woman with two children uh, she gets to know named Lola. And then there is a group of uh, pubescent girls. Uh, she teaches poetry to them, and um, they are uh, a complicated <laughs> bit of business, these girls. <laughs> the witches of Borden. Yes, some of them are quite mean. You you actually you you capture that really well, and it's it, it's um, that that hormone that that those raging the time of those raging hormonal changes for girls, yes. where things are even more complicated for them that age, and and you have Mia as their poetry teacher. Yes. And and then you have her going also to her mother's reading group, um, and they're reading uh, the the Jane <laughs> Austen book, Jane Austen's Persuasion. And and now that was of course also important, right? The picking of that book. What? Yes. Well, that you know, Persuasion is um, a late Austen, and it's a very um, you know, there's something. There's something sad about persuasion. It ends well, um, and at the same time, uh, it's about love postponed. You know, two people who love each other, but for all kinds of complicated uh, familial and societal reasons, uh, she rejects him. And then finally they do get each other, but there's a long period in a, in a sense of waste, wasted time um, that's left in the book. And I, I thought this was um, interesting to use as, as part of my novel. Yes, well, because depending on which characters you're considering that storyline with, it could mean different things. Like for That's the, right. Yes. 
like for the swans who are actually the the elderly group of women w- widows who who um who siri you have um uh who they allow mia to join them and she becomes good friends i i the character you make um Abigail, I just, <laughs> I, I, I love the, did, did you, how did I don't Abigail? Know, that just came to me. So, the, you know, Abigail is um, a gifted uh, seamstress and an embroiderer, but um, it turns out that when you begin to look closely at her embroideries, that she's hiding a number of insurrectionist secrets in those. And um, I, I somehow, I just love the idea of this old woman um, with, a secret. She calls them the secret amusements, and <laughs> so there's an underside. There's um, some subversion buried in this uh, very traditional uh, female form of, you know, craft, and uh, that was important to me that 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 came up. I fell in love with Abigail too. <laughs> and that, as you as you were articulating that, Siri, I feel like that's actually um, a, a major. Th- through line of the book Um. yes there is you know there is you know i think as you know there are these generations of women and especially these older women i mean they're in their 80s and 90s um and one woman who whom uh mia meets early in the book is 102 these are really elderly women and so the, there, there the, is some meditation on the nature of their lives and the degree to which simply being women, simply having female genitalia, has uh, limited their choices, um, in some cases very severely. And, uh, and, and so the, you know, the secret amusements are, are part of that limitation. And, of course, as the women get younger, you feel that there is greater opportunity in the future for them. Um, at the same time, I don't think the book is saying that it's all over. <laughs> I think we, there's still room, um, you know, that, that we still live in a paternalistic society, and uh, there's, there's still a ways to go. Yes. And there's, and it's, so that, so that is actually what it feels like this, this book, that's what it's working in somehow that that's, that's its, um, I don't know, that's its ocean or that's what it's, it's, it's. Yes, I think so. And even the use of um, Emily Dickinson as one of the poet voices that Mia calls upon in the book, for example, as early as page five, where you also have um, some some neat little like um, ink drawings in the book, too. Yes, yes, they're mine. I thought I wanted to have not they're not really illustrations. They're they're sort of like um, visual punctuation for the motion of the book. Oh, that's great. I love that visual punctuation. Yeah, that's really what they are because you know you don't really know what's going on, but they they somehow are um, images that conform to the to the movement of, of of the book. Well, and here, if if I love that, I love that idea, <laughs> and um, and just to see it come on the page because I think that is the first one, so that's yeah. the first time you see it, and uh, I know I immediately like tried to fan forward to see if there were there were others. So I think it really works. Good, <laughs> good. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> um, on, on this page, Emily Dickinson, this is where I think maybe Dickinson makes her first appearance. But since Mia is, is a poet, um, 
And, and your first book, published book, also, Siri, was a book of poems. That's right. I mean, um, a but, long time ago. That uh, was my very first little book. Oh, do, oh well, it's, it's lovely that it seems then to still, like, it, it's having sort of a, a second life here across the page as well. Yeah, well, Emily Dickinson is, you know, a, a genius of, of just, I mean, I, I read Dickinson a lot, and uh, one of the reasons that I look at her poems so often is that reading Dickinson makes you discover the, I don't know, the character of the English language. I mean, she did something with English that was so um, radical and continues to be really surprising. So I always feel that if you spend a little time with, with Emily Dickinson, you understand aspects of the language itself that you really can't understand without her. And of course, she's drawing on many, many sources, many, many other English sources, but the way she puts her verses together is, um, it truly is original, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm a great fan of Emily Dickinson. Well, we, we will take a short break and then we'll come back. Maybe we'll even have another quick word about Dickinson. <laughs> Okay. Um, but today on the program, Siri Husfed, um joins us by phone from Brooklyn, New York. Um, we'll be you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and thanks also to engineer Liz Wason, the great Liz, Liz the Great. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Siri Hootsfed. Um, Siri, thanks for picking these great songs. Oh, good. Yeah, well, I love that song, Stop in the Name of Love. I've, that's been around for quite a long time, and I remember it from when I was um, not so old. <laughs> Wait, and you're still not so old. Well, I'm I'm deep into my middle age, but uh, I'm fine with that. It, you know that that song is such a lovely one because it also seems really. Um, it could be, you know, as characters have soundtracks. I feel like that would be on your main character Mia's soundtrack from the Summer Without Men. Yes, um, yes. I mean, it fits. It fits because, you know, she's really. Uh, She's surprised. I think, 
you know, the story of uh, disintegrating marriages is a very, very ordinary one. But there is something special about the abrupt and sudden departure of a spouse. I have heard a number of these stories. Some of them um, I know quite well. I know the stories quite well because, uh, you know, the people were friends of mine. Um, others I've heard, and of course, since uh, there are people now who have read the book, I've heard more and more stories of, in most cases, it's the men who just suddenly leave. They announce and leave. <laughs> and there's no warning. I think that's what's so remarkable about about the, you know, the shape of the story is that there's no discussion. And I think I think it makes you wonder how can someone's um, heart turn that much or shift have some sort of a right or if it was a slow process why wouldn't the person say something about it yeah, that I that yes <laughs> you know? that is another that's another show Siri exactly well, that's a whole another show but but anyway so I I think that that there's something fascinating about human behavior and it does not always follow our, uh, you know, the way we like to think of things as somehow um, rational. People are making abrupt and sudden decisions, um, not telling their spouses about what they're doing. I mean, this happens all the time. And uh, as amazing as it is, it's not extraordinary. It's quite ordinary. Although I think the feelings for each and which you show so well with this character, Mia, are extraordinary and overwhelming. And you actually you the or the character does, whether you let her or not, I suppose. Right, Siri. But Mia actually is then hospitalized, hospitalized because yeah, she's she a breakdown. She has something called brief psychotic disorder, uh, which I think in the old days people might have called it a, a breakdown. Oh. Uh, you know, after her husband leaves her, she ends up in a psychiatric hospital for a couple of weeks with a psychotic disorder. Um, I chose this particular illness because it does happen to people after some kind of tremendous stress. Um, some people get it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it will ever return. Um, you know, I've read a number of cases of people who, say, witness some terrible accident, accident see someone die, um, someone they are close to leaves them or dies, and, and they end up in the hospital. So I gave that to her. She gets out, and, and that's really where the story begins. And I think it's important that um, that that that's where the character does begin in some way where there's there's um it it's sh because in a way it almost begins with fragments yes and i think that's a good point um yes she's in pieces <laughs> <laughs> and and you know the story of the book is um you know reconfiguring some of those pieces and it and it then it allows then also the the different pieces to be the vehicle of her um reconfiguring identity or, or becoming yes and you know what's interesting too is that um part of the book i think is also about imagination and about the healing properties of the imagination and how we tell stories about ourselves in other words you know everybody's autobiography is to some degree fictional you know it's not a documentary we tell ourselves a story 
And as our lives go on, we keep changing that story, putting little, you know, uh, parentheses around certain parts and making other parts more important and um, imagining our own lives in through the lenses of certain kinds of fiction, a romantic story or a tragic story. And Mia does quite a bit of that, you know, and she makes fun of herself to some degree for doing it. But I think uh, that is part of uh, our conscious autobiographies. And and on that note, Siri, would you mind, because before we came on the air, um, we were talking about your collection of essays, A Plea for Eros, um, as, as different than your other collection of er- essays that are, are based on, on art. Um, th- these essays um, range far and wide, and the, the last essay in the book, um, and the, the book itself is dedicated to your, your mother, uh, extracts from a story of the wounded self, I I wonder, would you mind um, uh, reading? No, no, I I wouldn't mind at all. It's um, I'm reading just a little thing. This is a um, a little story from my elementary school. At Longfellow Elementary School, talking in the lunchroom was forbidden. Not even a whisper was tolerated. We ate in silence. If the rule was broken, the miscreant was sent to the far end of the room by an adult person known as a lunchroom monitor to eat at one of the brown tables with folding chairs. The tables for good children were white with long, smooth benches. The world of the brown tables was a remote place inhabited by the naughty, the restless, the high-spirited, mostly boys who hadn't mastered the art of keeping quiet. I was in the first half of my second grade year when it happened to me. The school principal, an intimidating, immensely tall person with the uncannily apt name of Mr. Lord, strode into the lunchroom to deliver an announcement. He began speaking, stopped suddenly in mid-sentence, and to my horror, pointed in my direction. You, he bellowed, go to the brown tables. I was stunned. I hadn't uttered a word. I had done nothing. But I picked up my tray and made the long, mortifying journey past the other children to take the brown seat of humiliation. I was so troubled by the incident that I mustered the courage to speak to Mr. Lord on the playground after lunch. I walked toward him, looked up at his face, and said, What did I do? I wasn't talking. I detected embarrassment and discomfort in his expression. He hesitated, and in that brief moment when he said nothing, I could already feel my triumph. He peered down at me without looking me in the eyes and muttered, You were swallowing your food while I was talking. I was seven years old, and I knew this was ridiculous. He was ridiculous. The sentence burned itself into my consciousness as a sign of absolute sadistic stupidity. It had the force of an inner revelation. Some adults are as mean as some children. It was my innocence that
that had given me the strength to speak up, and my innocence coupled with the Stalinist whims of Mr. Lord that removed every trace of humiliation from my trip to the brown tables. (laughs) Siri, that's great. (laughs) It's funny about those memories from childhood, huh? Well, that was so vivid. I mean, the way that you were writing that, it was as if it was just, it was happening. Yes. Well, I'll never forget it. You know, there's an interesting thing in actually neuroscience research that we can all realize just if we think back on our lives, and that is that memory is consolidated by emotion. You know, we remember the things that meant something to us emotionally, and we have a tendency to forget the things that didn't. And boy, I'll tell you, being sent to the brown tables was a huge humiliation for me. I was really, you know, it was terrible. And, uh, and so it never left me. But, the, but also what's so striking in the story is that that you must have sensed that something was was like just was just not right like something was so confounding that you went and you actually talked to mr lord and you know as i said you know i was really a, a a good girl you know someone who believed in authority and in some sense certainly the authority of my parents and 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 school teachers you know i was i was quite obedient but I think it was one of my early lessons in injustice. And I realized that, you know, it's, you know, someone who acts like that is absurd. <laughs> you know, he's, he's violating even the ridiculous terms of his own legal contract. So there was something liberating about it as well. And, and Siri, at the... I know you know what I think maybe those are some of the moments where the I don't know like that having that courage and and you said you're seven years old like that (laughs) that's kind of what you need for writing as well yes well you know um there's a beautiful line in a in a in a book by um, an artist and a poet named Joe Brainerd, he wa- he wrote a beautiful book called I Remember, and every line begins with the wor- you know the two words I remember, and one of the one of the I remember phrases he says is that about his childhood he says I remember that life was just as serious then as it is now. Yes, and uh, I think it's good to remember that. You know, those of us who have children and were children was just as serious then as it is now. Yes. And that, I think, is now was Joe Brainerd was did did he make an appearance in um, and this this exercise like uh, in the shaking woman? Yes. Yes. When I was teaching psychiatric patients, um, I used Joe Brainerd's formula for the patients. And it was always an assignment that was well loved. And what you do is you, you, you write, I remember, and something extremely interesting happens, which is that the act of writing the words, I remember, seems in itself to generate memories. Some memories that you haven't thought about 
possibly for many, many years. The patients found this, and um, and I found it. We had a great time writing, I remember. It has something to do with the motor act of writing as well. And in The Shaking Women, I do talk about um, automatic writing, uh, you know, the sort of motor aspect of writing, um, how it seems to trigger thought. So, um, yeah, there's a there's a there's quite a bit about memory in, in in the shaking woman, but that's a great exercise. I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> if you keep a notebook or journal, just start writing. I remember and see what you begin to remember. Okay, so everyone, while we go to break, everyone do that. <laughs> I remember. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. Uh, today on the program, Siri Husfet, um joins us. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm the Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Siri Husfet is here um, by phone from Brooklyn. Siri, thanks thanks so much for being on the program today. Well, I'm delighted to be on. <laughs> and thanks for picking the Pogues. Yes, I, I, I love that. Um, in my family, we actually play that uh, every Christmas, and I think that one of the reasons I love that song is because this man and woman are fighting with such gusto. And that's why uh, it reminded me of my book, you know, of this sort of uh, spousal conflict uh, in a robust and active way. It, it, it's strange how it can give you pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. And, and, and maybe lead to some, I don't know, something new. Yes. Well, um, you know, I don't think that there's marriage without conflict, and I don't think there's life without conflict. And uh, we need to um, battle a bit in our lives. It's actually a good thing. I think uh, the culture is, um, I don't know, probably doesn't admit this as, enough, as, as much as it should. And maybe, actually, this would be a good time. I... I I loved your epigraph at the beginner, beginning of the Summer Without Men, Siri. Um, the yes, it's from The Awful Truth, a movie. And, and that movie was from the 1930s. Um, yes, it's The Awful Truth, directed by Leo McCary, and it stars Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. Um, and for the people out there who have never seen the movie, I, I strongly recommend it. It's very funny. It's very witty, and uh, it is indeed about um, about a marriage gone wrong. And uh, also in the book, I uh, mention 
probably the greatest book about these comedies by Stanley Cavell, which is called Pursuits of, ha- of Happiness, um, the Hollywood Comedy of Remarriage. And I do think of my book as uh, being, to some degree, inspired by those films. And the films are referred to quite often inside the book. And and the pacing of the book too is sort of mimicking. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's you know the the some of those movies, um, those great old comedies with uh, a couple in them, uh, were wonderful because the pace of the banter and the wit flying is something that I greatly admire, and it's. It's very rare in the movies these days. It's completely... Partly because I don't think, you know, fewer adults go to the movies. <laughs> you know, it's a, a lot of uh, teenage boys go to the movies now. So uh, so the uh, adult audience is, is much smaller. Yes, like the old Billy Wilder films or... Yes, well, the epigraph from The Awful Truth is about difference, you know? It's it's really very funny. I have it right in front of me. So this is Lucy, played by Irene Dunn, and she says, You're all confused, aren't you? Jerry, played by Cary Grant, says, Uh-huh, aren't you? Lucy, no. Jerry, well, you should be, because you're wrong about things being different, because they're not the same. Things are different, except in a different way. You're still the same, only I've been a fool. Well, I'm not now. So as long as I'm different, don't you think things could be the same again? Only a little different? (laughs) I I love that. That's great. (laughs) It's great. It's also, you know, finally a very deeply philosophical thing. And um, this little novel is you know, about, to some degree, these questions of difference, you know. When does one thing become another? Is there change in the world? Um, you know, what does it mean? How do we divide up things? Why are, are some things the same and other things different? Um, what is sexual difference? What is the difference between men and women? Um, so it was the perfect epigraph. That's what I was just going to ask, actually, Siri. Was it something like in the film where this part just jumped out at you? And you were... Yes, I've seen the film several times. It's one of my uh, genuine favorites. And I've listened to Cary Grant deliver that uh, little uh, monologue about difference uh, many, many times. So when I was uh, working on the book, I thought, Oh, my goodness, there it is. And there are quite a few references to cinema. And actually, at the very end of the book, when the book ends, um, the last line is fade out, (laughs) as if it were a cinematic work. (laughs) Exactly. And and is that the... Is that why, then? Yes, that's why. Um, You know, it's it's announcing itself as um, not really a movie, but as a... Uh, work of artifice, you know, something that's not not the world. And uh, Mia has been playing around with um, different forms and the idea of comedy um, throughout the book. So I thought it was appropriate. And she has the very last line. She does. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a funny thing. Um, at some moment, pretty early on, I, I... I saw the scene. I mean, I, I knew that um, 
that that's how I wanted the book to end. And as I, as we talked about earlier, sometimes those ends don't work out, and 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 I can't get my characters to do it. But in this case, the my original ending became the real ending, and you know the last line of the book is, "Let him come to me." Yes, and well, I, I actually wasn't going to say it because oh, I didn't. <laughs> right. But maybe people will. Know. Well, actually, um, we don't know what it means. Okay, no but one knows. Lots no. of things. That's right. <laughs> and soon, I think around April twenty sixth, um, people can pick up their com- copy of the Summer Without Men, and 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 read to the last line. Um, and, and Siri, I, I also, this, this one section where you're talking about the, the film in the book, um, if you don't mind, I'll just read it. It's a couple of lines um, where, and who among us would deny Jane Austen her happy endings or insist that Cary Grant and Irene Dunn should not get back together at the end of the awful truth. There are tragedies and there are comedies, aren't there? And they are often more the same than different, rather like men and women, if you ask me. A comedy depends on stopping the story at exactly the right moment. That's true. You know, um, it's it's a fun, I've often thought about it. Uh, if you think of two Shakespeare plays, um, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet ends with bodies all over the stage. Uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream ends happily. But if you look at the love stories, it's really they're really very similar. It's just that one ends in the marriages and the other ends in in, in death. So um, it's. It's about these turns. The comedy is about ending more than anything else, and stopping the story. So, for in Jane Austen, you, the book ends usually with the marriage, and you think they're going to be happy, but in some way you don't know. Right. <laughs> Leave well enough alone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I have to say that on that part, I had um, I had marked it immediately as a as a writer thinking, ah, that's something that you've kind of maybe you've sense, but I had never actually really articulated it. So I was like, yes, that's it. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm glad it resonated it, with you. It did. <laughs> and, and so Siri, like you've, you've known um, that you've wanted to be a writer and be writing since about age 14. Yeah. Even 13, I think 13 was when I made my inner decision you know, ridiculous and absurd as it was, but I, I really decided that that's what I wanted to do. And when you say inner decision, it was something that um, you knew alone. It's not as if you talked to other people about it, but you felt no, sure. No, actually, I didn't share it with the wider world until I was 14, and that was when I was interviewed in my little new, local newspaper because they had this thing called Teen of the Week in the newspaper, and they would have anyone. I mean, it had nothing to do with... Um, you know, that you were any important teenager. You were just a member of, of, of the town. And um, they asked every child who did that, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said very pretentiously that I wanted to be an author. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they all thought I was a complete twit, you know. But it's 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 rather wonderful when I, I think now that I actually did it. And and 
and it stuck and you continue to do it. And, and here also in the same essay that you read briefly from earlier, Siri, you said, I am, af- you, you say, I'm afraid of writing too, because when I write, I am always moving toward the unarticulated, the dangerous, the place where the walls don't hold. Yes, I think that's true. Um, you know, because so much of writing is, is not really conscious. And I'm sure that to some degree, I've always been exploring this um, dark, unarticulated, unconscious geography um, of myself. And uh, it, it seems to have many facets, as I think that's true of everyone. And with fiction, um, that's also a way of examining because it's as what you've said earlier too. It's it's like a, what comes out, what your characters have access to, what you have access to, are all um, your own explorations and trying to figure things out in the world. From- yes, you know what's very strange. I think is that um, unlike memoir, where you know you really are writing as yourself. And we talked about this earlier, making uh, an autobiography, telling your story. There's a a, a liberating and very free quality uh, in fiction where you become somebody else. Obviously, that other self has to be part of you. You know, where, where would this strange character come from, man or woman, child or old person? But... Sometimes I think by being someone else, you are able to discover aspects of yourself that you couldn't without this fictional tool, without this other person. Um, It can make you braver being someone else. And and in your novel, The Sorrows of an American, your, your main character, your protagonist, Eric, he, he actually, he has lost his father and it's it's the book itself seems to be a a tribute to your father you use actual um your your father's memoirs yes siri and yes yes that was this is a very strange thing because i i and i think uh, thinking about it you know you, you might say why not just actually write a book about your father as yourself and i think the reason i wrote as this 